Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Ah. Uh, um. Been playing some cribbage lately? Cribbage sounds kind of like cabbage. Is that anything? It's not, is it? Well, look, it's been a weird week. So, do me a solid and pretend that the fact that cribbage sounds kind of like cabbage is some kind of observational humor or something. Will ya? Thanks. <laughs> cabbage, am I right? Anyway, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is another collaboration between Devin Tuhey and Mark Paglia. Because I could not stop the Hulk, he kindly stopped for me. He boasted of his strength and rage and invulnerability. We smashed and jumped. He ate his beans, and I had some as well. But if a human pissed him off, well, then he gave them hell. We passed the sanctum, where Steve strove to learn new sorceries. We passed Atlantis, beneath the waves, we passed Richmond Industries. Since then, tis centuries, and yet, his smashing still brings bliss. And so, I'll learn all of his rules, and this new synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin and Mark. I tried very hard to resist singing that to the tune of the Yellow Rose of Texas, uh, and I'm not sure I entirely succeeded in that, but... Ever since I learned from an episode of Head of the Class that you can sing Emily Dickinson's poems to the tune of The Yellow Rose of Texas, I am always tempted to do so. Defenders, number 93, March 1981. The Woman Behind the Man. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Drotted by Don Perlin. Inked by Joe Sinnott and Al Milgram and Frank Giacoa, lettered by Diana Albers, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Nighthawk. Valkyrie. Hellcat. The Incredible Hulk. Doctor Strange. Son of Satan. Clea. Wong. And Namor, the Submariner. Previously in the Defenders. Doctor Strange's old pal Eternity, with a capital E, was having a bit of an existential crisis. Seeing as Eternity with a capital E was the living avatar for all of the everythingness in the universe, that was a bit of a problem, because if he had a bad enough day, reality might stop happening. Steve called up his buddies Namor and Damon Hellstrom, aka Son of Satan, to lend the Defenders a hand, and together, they managed to prevent the entire cosmos from just fucking off forever. Hooray! On a less hooray note, Hellcat, aka Patsy Walker, was still grieving the loss of her estranged mother Dorothy, who by all accounts, was a real piece of work. Also, the Hulk played with some of the autobiographical action figures that Steve left lying around the sanctum. Gadzooks! 
Will Devil Dadded Do-Gooder Damon Hellstrom continue to pal around with our titular non-team? Will the Hulk's playtime antics have dire repercussions? And how will Patsy deal with the grief of losing her mother? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Yup. No, it was just an adorable thing that he did. And she smashes some stuff in her bedroom and gets kidnapped by a shadow. Gee, I don't even think notoriously questionable grief counselor Donna Troy would recommend that course of action. After helping save both the actual universe and the anthropomorphic representation thereof, Namor decides to celebrate by frolicking with some dolphins. The dolphins seem a little wary, so maybe they're the ones who punched him in the nipples a while back and they're worried that this is just a trap. But the subaquatic sovereign is oblivious to their apparent trepidation and has a nice frolic. Good for him. The Submariner's somewhat suspicious cetacean subordinates are spared any further socially awkward cavorting when Namor hears a distress call coming from a nearby underwater cave and swims off to investigate. Turns out that the cries for help originate from a very familiar face. It's Namor's ex-fiancée, Lady Dorma. Well, what are the odds? I don't have my calculator out right now, but off the top of my head... I'd have to say 0%, primarily because Lady Dorma has been dead for several years at this point. Namor brings that up, and Dorma's like, yeah, but don't worry about it. So, Namor doesn't worry about it. Hmm. Meanwhile, back at Doctor Strange's Sanctum Sanctimonious, Steve is hanging out with Son of Satan, Bruce Banner, Valkyrie, Wong, and Clea. Bruce is a little fuzzy on the events of the last issue, on account of he was the Hulk at the time. Hey Bruce, makes you feel any better? I'm a little fuzzy on the events of the last issue as well, and I don't have a gamma-radiated alter ego to blame it on. Clea starts to fill the physicist in on what he missed, but Val is like, Ugh, exposition? Boring! Just then, Nighthawk shows up with a few pints of ice cream and starts making everybody Sundays. Hooray! Must be nighttime because Kyle exhibits the ice cream scooping abilities of two strong men, and everyone is very impressed. While the rest of the defenders are distracted by the dairy distribution, Damon Hellstrom takes Steve aside and asks if they can talk in private for a second. Steve is like, have no fear, Damon. Doctor Strange is ever the soul of discretion. None could be more inconspicuous than I! And with that, he summons a glowing green sphere which envelops the two eldritch adventurers. The rest of the gang stares at the big green ball which is now taking up a third of the room and are like, Huh, looks like Steve is being inconspicuous again. Fucking Steve. Unfortunately, before Damon gets much of a chance to question the wisdom of trusting Steve with his secrets, their private chat is interrupted by a scream coming from outside the bubble. Kyle has just collapsed on the Sanctum's floor. Bruce checks for a pulse, and when he's unable to find one, concludes that Kyle is dead. Poor Kyle. Must have scooped too close to the sun and melted his ice cream wings. Okay, spoiler, Kyle isn't actually dead. Bruce Banner just isn't great at checking pulses. Turns out, just because you're one type of doctor, doesn't mean you're every type of doctor. I mean, in the Marvel Universe it does usually mean that, but not this time. 
Anyway, the erroneous Dr. Banner is so upset by his misdiagnosis of Kyle's unaliveness that he freaks out and turns into the Hulk. While the other defenders are prematurely mourning the passing of someone they have misdiagnosed as dead, Namor has returned to Atlantis so that his subjects can perhaps prematurely celebrate the return of someone who he believes was similarly misdiagnosed. The Atlanteans are stoked but confused to see Dorma. Namor's second-in-command, Lord Vashti, gives voice to this confusion and politely asks the royal revenant what gives Ari her apparent resurrection. Dorma is like, Oh, the me-dying thing? Yeah, um, that was a clone or something. Nah, don't worry about it. Unlike Namor, Vashti does appear to worry about it, but he's seen enough of his boss's temper tantrums to know that he should probably keep his misgivings to himself. Later that night, the jubilant Prince of Abslantis holds a big press conference and is like, Hey everybody, I've got a fun idea. Let's celebrate the fact that my dead fiancé isn't dead anymore by invading and conquering the surface world. You know, for old time's sake. Most of the crowd is pretty into this idea, but one guy pipes up and is like, Actually, I kind of think that's a bad idea. The last time you got this particular imperialist bee up your sea bonnet, a lot of young Atlanteans lost their lives. Maybe you could celebrate your love in a way that doesn't involve unprovoked military aggression? Like, maybe you could cook her a nice meal or something. A few issues ago, we had that banquet where there was a giant fish with an apple in its mouth. That was nice. Maybe try making one of those. Lady Dorma coldly stares down the dissenting Atlantean, which the crowd takes as a cue to beat the shit out of him while she watches approvingly. So I guess she's not a fan of seafood. Back at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, Steve has offered the second opinion that Kyle is in fact alive. Hooray? Val asks what happened and Steve is like, Remember an indeterminate amount of comic book time ago back in Defenders number 14? We had just fought that interstellar glamrock geologist turned planetary real estate mogul Nebulon the Celestial Man? who had bought the Earth for no money down and planned on flipping it by melting the ice caps to flood the planet so that he could sell it for a huge profit to a race of aquatic aliens? You remember him, right? He, he came back later and kidnapped Jack Norris, an angry baby deer, and some urban canoeing enthusiasts so that he could start a Bozo the Clown-themed self-help cult. Remember? Yeah, that guy. Well... You know how during our first encounter, Kyle nearly died fighting him, so you, the Hulk, Namor, and myself each carved off a little piece of our respective souls, and I mystically smushed them into his corpse to resuscitate him? Well, his condition is somehow related to that in some unspecified way. At this point, Kyle wakes up and wants to know what's going on and why he can't move. Steve is like, Oh, I just told Val, and I'd really rather not repeat myself, but long story short, it has something to do with magic. And I haven't worked out any of the details yet, but I feel confident stating with 100% certainty that you will be totally paralyzed for the remainder of your life. Sorry. Oh, and is there any ice cream left? Between instantly diagnosing your condition based on almost no evidence, delivering all that exposition, and ever so gently breaking the bad news to you, I've worked up quite an appetite. The Hulk is not particularly impressed with either Steve's fatalism 
or his lack of tact. He expresses his disapproval by threatening to smash the supercilious sorcerer unless he cures Kyle, but Steve insists that there's nothing he can do to help the ailing avian aficionado. This awkward scene is interrupted by Wong, who insists that those who are able to do so must join him in the TV room immediately. Ooh, is Benson on? Sadly, it is not. Instead of images of Robert Guillaume using his caustic wit and homespun wisdom to subtly guide the California state government from behind the scenes, the defenders see a news report lamenting the fact that King Namor and his Atlantean forces have just invaded and conquered Great Britain. Well, that was fast. Leaving Clay and Wong to perform the emotional labor of consoling a despondent Kyle Richmond, Steve uses a teleportation spell to send himself, Valkyrie, the Hulk, and Damon Hellstrom across the pond to confront their erstwhile non-teammate and tell him to knock it off. While this quartet of crime fighters prepares to engage in their particular brand of two-fisted international diplomacy, a confrontation of a decidedly different type is taking place in the idyllic yet strangely crime-ridden suburban town of Montclair, New Jersey. Patsy Walker is sitting in the bedroom of her newly inherited home and yelling at a picture of her recently deceased mother. Patsy stares at the framed photograph and yells at the woman it represents for A, being a shitty mom, and two, being dead. In an act of grief and frustration, Patsy hurls the picture across the room, shattering both the frame and a mirror mounted on the wall. Uh-oh. Somebody's in for an indeterminate amount of comic book time's worth of bad luck. The heartbroken Hellcat doesn't have to wait long for this mirror-smash-induced misfortune to manifest itself either. A shadowy silhouette emerges from the folds of Patsy's mystical and apparently aptly named Shadow Cloak, which had been hanging in the closet. The sinister silhouette advances on the unsuspecting, recently orphaned hero. Dun dun dun! Um, sorry, let me try that again. That's better. Now, back to the main story. Steve, Damon, the Hulk, and Valkyrie arrive in London and are shocked at the carnage that the Atlantean military has already wreaked. Steve finds Namor hanging out in front of Big Ben and tells him to knock it off, but the Submariner is in full Imperious Rex mode and doesn't feel like knocking it off. He slaps the living shit out of Steve. Hooray! I mean, I know the Submariner's the antagonist here, but seeing Steve get slapped is fun. The rest of the undersea-originating army, Navy, wants in on the Steve-slapping fun and rushes the surprise superheroes. It doesn't go great for them. The defenders are more than capable of holding their own against the water-breathing warriors who assault them. As he watches the battle, Namor is like, Wait a minute, why am I fighting the defenders? They're my... Well, not friends exactly, but like... Occasional co-workers against whom I bear only a reasonable amount of ill will? Something like that? Why should I order my army to attack them? Dorma is like, Because I said so, that's why. Namor is like, Okie dokie, works for me! And calls for the Sonic Scrambler. Wait, like the Dead Boys song? No, that's Sonic Reducer. The Doctor Who thingamajig? No, that's the Sonic Screwdriver. Is the Sonic Scrambler a new item on the breakfast menu at a popular chain of drive-in restaurants? Possibly. But it's also 
a weird high-tech amphibious assault vehicle which emerges from a nearby alleyway and emits a high-pitched squeal that renders the defenders almost immediately unconscious. Oh, that's Sonic Scrambler. Although to be fair, I think some of the Dead Boys B-sides might have had a similar effect. Zing! Take that Cheetah Chrome and Stiv Baiters and other members of the Dead Boys whose names aren't cool enough for me to remember. A few hours later, the gang wakes up. Well, most of them do. Hulk is still snoozing because he's stuffed in a little snow globe filled with a soporific fog that Namor calls the Somnolomists, which is a cool name for a sleep-inducing fog. Val, Steve, and Damon are awake, though. For all the good it does them. Steve and the Son of Satan have their mouths and hands restrained to keep them from doing any magic stuff, and Valkyrie is flanked by a pair of burly Atlantean women who are holding her in place. Val's mystically enforced inability to harm another woman keeps her from trying too strenuously to escape, but unlike her companions, she's still able to yell at Namor and Dorma, which is what she does. The sorceressly Scandinavian swordslinger is like, Hey Namor, why are you being such an asshole all of a sudden? The Monarch of Moistness, ugh, sorry about that, is like, that's actually a good question. Dorma is like, no it isn't. Then she slaps Valkyrie. Val tries to fight back, but her attacks aren't particularly effective. Dorma gloats that soon she will be Queen of Atlantis and ruler of the whole shitty planet. As she rants, Namor starts to shake his regal head and say, no, this isn't right. As Dorma's speech becomes more impassioned, her appearance begins to shimmer and blur. She notices this happening and is like, Ah, shit. I forgot how susceptible to emotions human bodies are. You know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna change into a different form. One you may recognize. There's a flash of light, and suddenly, Dorma's body is replaced with that of the golden-skinned, silver-haired, glam-rock space geologist and erstwhile cult leader, Nebulon, the Celestial Man. Okay, so first of all, hooray! But also, he just said that the issue was that human bodies are too susceptible to emotions. I'm pretty sure Dorma was Atlantean, not human. And if feelings were going to be such an issue for him, Why'd he bother forming a limbic system as part of his disguise? Seems like that level of attention to detail is just gonna fuck him up. Anyway, Nebulon launches into a little speech about how since the last time he and our heroes tussled, he got picked up by some space cops and thrown in space jail for violating the Prime Directive or whatever. He managed to bust out of space prison and figured that since his real form is that of a giant aquatic sea slug, he may as well hide out in Earth's oceans. When Namor and his pensive porpoise pals came frolicking near his hideout, the temptation to seek revenge on the defenders was too great. So he used a little shape-shifting and a little mind control to fuck with the avenging scion of Atlantis and impersonate his beloved dead fiancé. And that was that. I guess Nebulon must have been in some kind of exposition-induced fugue state when he recited this information, because he didn't notice that while he was talking... Namor went ahead and freed the rest of the defenders. Oops. The gang is plenty peeved. None more so than the Submariner himself. Together, the heroes start beating the living shit out of Nebulon. 
Hooray! Unable to maintain his humanoid body in the face of such an enthusiastic pummeling, Nebulon reverts to his slimy alien slug form. Namor picks up the extraterrestrial invertebrate and is like, I can't believe I made out with a jerk like you, and throws Nebulon as far as he can. He's about to fly after the airborne alien asshole so that he can punch him some more, but suddenly, a spaceship shows up and beams Nebulon aboard. I guess it's those space cops Nebulon was talking about before. They fire up their space loudspeaker and are like, Sorry about this guy. We'll just haul his evil butt back to space jail. Hope he didn't cause too much trouble. Then they turn intangible and fuck off back to space. Well, that was unexpected. The defenders stand around and look at each other for a minute. And then I guess they all just go home. The end. Wait, really? And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I watched Return to Oz the other night. Is that a sequel to the Wizard of Oz movie? Yeah, it came out when we were little kids, and it scared the shit out of me. But I was like, eh, a lot of things used to scare me as a kid. Like... I'm not afraid to flush the toilet anymore, so <laughs> maybe I could watch Return to Oz. And guess what? Still scary. I'm stuck on the, the toilet flushing thing. That was is, is that something that is typically scary to uh, kids? I have no idea. It was something that was very scary to me. I blame the video box cover to the movie Ghoulies. Oh. I thought it would signal demonic beings who maybe lived in the sewers to come up and eat my butt. Okay, yeah, that's fair. The cover of the Ghoulies VHS box is pretty scary. Yeah. How are you doing? Still good. Good. <laughs> I am not afraid to flush the toilet. Well, I'm not anymore either, Corey. I'm sorry that you had a scary time watching that movie, though. Yeah, it's a kid's movie, definitely. But it starts off with, like, Dorothy's back in Kansas. It's after the first one. and. She won't shut up about Oz, so Auntie M and Uncle Henry take her into the big city to see a psychiatrist who is going to give her electroshock therapy treatment. Oh, Like, damn. that's the framing device of the movie. Good news, there's a happy ending. The sanitarium gets hit by lightning and the doctor dies. Oh. Oh my. Yeah. It's a fucking trip. And, like, that's not the most disturbing thing that happens in the movie. Oh, jeez. Yeah, but also better than I had remembered, Dorothy is played by a very young Feruza Balk, which was weird to see, and she did a great job. So, yeah, I would give a qualified recommendation of Return to Oz if you're okay with being uh, spooked. I don't know. I feel like there's so much media to consume these days <laughs> that... I'm going to need less of a qualified recommendation. Gotcha. Speaking of recommendations, I am becoming a fan of J.M. Demetrius's writing. This was an enjoyable issue for me, despite 
So many words. Yeah, I felt the same. When I first opened the comic, I was like, oh no, <laughs> there's too <laughs> many words. Right. But I didn't get bogged down in it the way that I did in the Hannigan issues. And a lot, arguably too much, happened in this issue. But I also really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was cool. I felt like we got more visibility into the psyche of the various characters, and that was mm -hmm. enjoyable. And yeah, there was just a ton going on, though. There really was. This and the last issue both seemed odd for being standalone issues. Like, the scale that they happened on in both of these issues is very large and has worldwide, or in the last issue, cosmos-wide ramifications and a lot of story happening in a way that I think you would normally see spread out over at least two issues. But it worked, and I think also it's kind of reestablishing what the Defenders are. He's scaling up the Defenders to be big cosmic fighting team, which they haven't felt like for a while now. So he's establishing the scale, and it looks like we're about to start a multi-issue arc. And with how much has happened in the two single issues that he's done, I'm really curious as to how that's going to play out and to how that's going to be paced out. But it seems intentional. Yeah, it does. It has the feel that it's leading up to something. I don't know if Namor's going to want to stick around now. He seems pretty weirded out that he made out with a giant space slug monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that definitely took me aback. That was a heck of a reveal and not one that I saw coming. I actually thought they handled that pretty well, too. It's really dicey territory, especially in the early 80s, when you see them play with the gender dynamics, specifically of a villain. And I was kind of waiting for it to be more cringe-inducing. And it never really was. Yeah, I was relieved that they kind of had the out of, like, uh, again, that I feel like this keeps coming up, you know, good man laid low by an evil woman thing, mm -hmm. and they kind of turned that around into, nope, he was just laid low by a giant evil space slug. Yes, giant evil space slug. Also, the fact that it was a giant evil space slug removed what really could have been an obvious moment of gay panic for Namor. Because you do see him freaking out that he made out with an asshole like Nebulon. But it doesn't have it be that, like, because you're a dude, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, partly because Nebulon, it's not clear if he is a dude. Certainly he's always presented as male presenting before, but he's a giant space slug who is assuming a false identity of both a man and of a woman. It's still just weird as fuck, though. Yeah, I forgot how much I liked his um, space leotard. It's a very good outfit. It seems like he got all the stars that you would normally see on Eternity's outfit. I like that twinkling, man. It works. Mm-hmm. It's a good look. Buff metallic David Bowie, the space intercontinental champion, is just a solid, solid fashion choice. <laughs> There is some weird Namor shit happening in this issue that I mostly really dug, and even some of the, I think, inadvertent decisions that were made kind of worked. When I say inadvertent decisions, I mean 
partly in terms of the art. This is, I believe, a bit of a rushed job to finish this comic book. The past several issues have been done by the team of Don Perlin and Pablo Marcos on inks. Mm -hmm. This issue is Don Perlin and Joe Sinnott and Frank Giacoa and Al Milgram on inks. And I think there were probably deadline issues. I think the art in this is pretty good, but there are a couple of places in which some kind of odd choices are made. And one of the ones that amused me the most is the way that all of the different sea creatures are reacting to Namor's presence. Did you notice that? I definitely noted the dolphin side eye. <laughs> Both on the first page and then the follow-up on the second page, where the dolphins are just like, uh, I don't know about this. <laughs> and then below the second dolphin side eye, you see the fish kind of looking at him like, uh, <laughs> this creep. And then a few pages later, you see a sea turtle that is just totally over his shit. I just thought he was like um a really sleepy sea turtle. But yeah, you could totally read him as just being like, ugh, this guy. And I think that choice kind of makes sense. When you have a character who is as canonically mercurial as Namor, when he shows up and it's just like, wee, I'm happy, let's frolic, you're going to be like, okay, he can smash me and he's the king of the sea, so uh, I guess I'm going to frolic, but I am very nervous about this situation. Mm -hmm. It's like he's going out to drinks with his boss and his boss really wants to party, and he's like, I don't know, this seems like it's a bad idea. This could break bad in so many ways. Yeah, totally, and... I mean, it's not only the sea creatures, like Lord Foshti, his advisor, is in that boat, too. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm, I don't know about this, but okay. So that was one interesting thing that I thought that was going on with Namor. The other, I mean, he conquers England so fast. For the second time, right? Uh-huh. And then at the end of the issue, there's really no follow-up to how that's going to go. Like, is he going to have to do some kind of a press conference apologizing? Oh, he's not going to do that. Are you kidding? No, I'm pretty sure he's not. But I think if he really doesn't want to, he's got kind of a pretty good out in terms of, you know what? This is a good object lesson for the British Empire. Colonization's not so fun on the other side, is it, guys? Huh? <laughs> what did we learn? Yeah, that's true. You used uh, naval superiority <laughs> to... Uh... <laughs> Get your ass beat. Didn't feel good, mm. did it? Is this what that felt like the whole time? No wonder <laughs> people don't like me. There was one other bit of weirdness with the artwork that I am guessing was a miscue of some sort on page four. Did you notice in the, the panel on the upper right, it looks like Steve is both in the privacy bubble and outside the privacy bubble at the same time? The panel in which um, Nighthawk is saying, gee, if they wanted to be alone they could have just left the room oh you're totally right yeah steve is like just lurking behind them yeah i think you're right i think that is probably a coloration issue there are a few of those in this issue but i i bet that is supposed to be bruce banner but it does look like steve is just like i'll just send my astral self out here to watch these guys scoop ice cream <laughs> make sure nobody's talking about me Exactly. Yeah, let's see what they're saying about me after I've just done this total dick move. <laughs> and then like, oh, you guys are excluded. Yeah, Steve is, I think, 
at maybe his steviest in this issue that we have ever seen him. You get that privacy move. You get when Damon Hellstrom asks him about the mystical object, and he's like, oh, I just use this as a paperweight. That strikes me as a very Steve move. The television? Why, Wong, why would I care about anything that happens on television? Despite the fact that he clearly has a big screen TV, which is a lot more of a commitment in 1982 than it is now. And canonically, he and Wong, at least according to us, spent a lot of time watching <laughs> shows on that big screen TV. You know what it is? I think that Hellstrom brings out the Stevius Stevius? The mm -hmm. Steviness in Steve? I think that would make sense, or at least like the arrogant academic side of Steve is like, oh, another learned magician. Better really ramp up the Steve here. It's showtime. Yeah, yeah, no, he totally wants to show off for his, uh, his buddy. Yeah, he also is demonstrating maybe the worst bedside manner I've ever seen. <laughs> I actually felt really bad for Kyle in this issue. I, like, I know I trash him a lot, but oh man, poor guy. I gotta say, I really like J.M. DeMatteis Kyle so far. Like, we talked about it last issue. You had some issues with him. I, I liked him in that. In this one, I mean, he's doing some flair ice cream bartending. Yeah, that was really sweet of him. Like, the gang's all back from their adventure, and he just, you know, nobody asked him. He goes off, goes to Baskin-Robbins, mm -hmm. gets a bunch of fancy ice cream to have a little ice cream party. Yeah, and like... He is clearly doing some scooping tricks, and Bruce Banner is loving that shit. <laughs> He's clapping <laughs> like an excited child. He's literally clapping excitedly. Yes, when he watches Kyle scoop a perfectly round sphere of ice cream and drop it from a great height into a Sunday dish. Yeah, no, he's, he's putting on a good show for the gang. Yeah, he's doing some, like, Benny Hanna ice cream shit. It makes me wonder, though, a little bit about how the rest of the gang sees him. Because just a couple panels later, you see that from within their sphere of privacy, Stephen Damon hear him yell as he passes out. And the description of his yell is, The scream is raw, pathetic, and horrifyingly familiar. <laughs> yeah, that cracked me up, too, because it made me think, like, this is just something Kyle does all the time. <laughs> Well, yeah, the fact that it's horrifyingly familiar is just like, oh, God, again? <laughs> Damn it, Kyle, with the night terrors. Ugh. And we maybe have an excuse for that, because I got a question here that this comic book raises, which had not occurred to me when the event took place, but is Kyle the Defender's version of Trigon? Oh, because there's a little bit of them and him and that's what keeps them alive yeah like they each snipped off bits of their soul and stuffed them into his body to keep him alive oh just the shitty parts <laughs> did they go the azarathian route and it's all just like soul snouts and assholes oh. making a uh, a sausage of kyle well he was an asshole before right so maybe they were trying to recreate it but i think the question still remains let me see if i can put this in like proper SAT question verbiage, uh, is Kyle colon Defenders colon colon Trigon colon Azerathians? Um, sorry, I, I got distracted by all the colons. 
Well, colons can be very distracting. <laughs> is Kyle to the Defenders what Trigon is to the Azerathians? Because it kind of seems that way, and it would frankly explain a lot about Kyle. Mm. I like this theory, but if that's the case, I think we would also have expected to see some notable changes in the members of Defenders that snipped off their less desirable parts of their soul to uh, contribute to the Kyle. Mm, that is a good point. Yeah, Steve didn't seem to necessarily lose any of his soul snouts and assholes, did he? Not really. I, I like the idea, though. Let's uh, let's keep that in mind as uh, the story arc unfolds, and maybe we'll observe some more subtle behavior changes that explain which which parts of themselves Kyle's companions gave up. Yeah, I think that's a good plan. I gotta say one thing that I wasn't expecting from this issue was the wide variety of Atlantean mustache choices. You weren't expecting that? Surprisingly, no. And I was delighted by what I found. I mean, you've got an Atlantean Freddie Mercury, (laughs) but I think more notably, above him, a guy who I gotta believe is the guy who poses for the front of Atlantean pizza boxes. <laughs> and and then there's another guy who has just like an Atlantean jerry curl with a slick little Atlantean Van Dyke who is raising his arms in triumph. Like that scene, there are just some big swings being taken in terms of facial hair. And I really enjoyed them. Oh, yeah. The Atlanteans were depicted really well. The art in general throughout this issue is is really good. It is. As I mentioned, there are some inconsistencies with like the sea life not quite necessarily landing the way it's supposed to, and there were some issues with coloration, but I believe the lead inker on this was Joe Sinnott, and he is maybe my favorite inker. I think he works really well with Don Perlin. I liked Don Perlin's stuff with Pablo Marcos okay, but it never seemed like the most comfortable fit. And uh, I really dig this stuff. Yeah, I mean, there are some like little issues, like the perspective on Wong's hand when he busts in to tell everybody to come watch TV. Like, it looks like his pinky is really broken. I mean, it might be. We've seen he gets up to a lot of different adventures when nobody's watching. That's true. But even on that same page, the depth of emotion that's captured on everybody's faces when they find Kyle is Mm -hmm. really good. Yeah, it's really nicely done. I mentioned there were a couple of coloration issues. Uh, A few of them, I think, center around Son of Satan. He is inconsistently shown to have a reversible cloak. Like, sometimes it's just solid red, sometimes it's yellow interior. And I actually really like the yellow interior. But what I wasn't crazy about was that they decided to fill in his pentagram on his chest with a white star most of the time, and it just looks weird. Mm. Yeah, I didn't really notice that, but I I see what you mean now. It makes it look like the colorist was just like, oh, is this Captain America's new look? (laughs) (laughs) Big white star on the chest. I always remembered Captain America wearing a shirt, but who can keep track of all this stuff? Okay, guys. So as satisfying as the story was, and I wasn't even mad at this, but it felt out of place in how Haney-esque it was, the very ending of the issue, where 
Namor picks up Nebulon in his giant slug form and just throws it over the edge of the ship. And there's some caption work saying that, like, he has big plans for vengeance. Honestly, darker than we're used to seeing, even in some of these Defenders books, which have been kind of heavy. He has every intention of soaring after the slime-caked creature and mashing its bones to powder, of rending it limb from limb. But then... Some space cops show up out of nowhere and just beam him up into their spaceship and fly away. I love that scene. It's the contraption that they're flying is so goofy looking. Mm -hmm. Like it kind of reminded me of, I don't know, something that you would have seen in, um, in that movie Brazil. Like this take on like what the future will look like, but all sort of comically misrendered. Yeah, it's that version of future shit where it's all like, well, clearly they're going to need a lot of pneumatic tubes and stuff if it's going to be space. I like that retro futurist stuff so much. And we see that not only in that ship design, but in the Atlanteans sonic scrambler tank that they're using. And yeah, that stuff is just really cool looking. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts about the art in here is the way that the technology was rendered. I also loved it, and I loved that scene where it's Nebulon in his weird space slug form being beamed up in this bright blue beam, that, but it drops so out of nowhere. It's I know I already made one Simpsons reference, but it is so very, and then Poochie returned to his home planet, never to be seen again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was relieved that that spaceship I don't know, zapped itself out of phase or whatever because Namor is so mad he like grabs a piece of the thing he's standing on and hurls it at the ship and I was like, oh great, now you're going to let the space slug go and like destroy the tribunal <laughs> ship and like start all this new shit but they just sort of blink out of existence just in the nick of time. Yeah, I thought it was a really good thing that they did that. I was also kind of relieved that we don't do a president of the drama club for this issue because it would have been a really tight race between Namor and uh, Patsy in this one mm. with them both breaking and throwing devices out of fits of over-emotion. Yeah, totally. That Patsy, even though she only gets one page in the book, that really got me nervous, like wondering what's going on. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely setting up a bigger storyline, and I'm glad it's going to involve the Shadow Cloak. It makes me think that there was perhaps some conferencing going on between Demetrius and Ed Hannigan when Hannigan ended the run. And he was like, okay, so what do you need me to set up? Because he introduced the Shadow Cloak again at the very end of his run, but didn't really do anything with it. And now it seems like there are major plans afoot surrounding it. And I think that's really interesting. You see, like, that shadow coming out of the cloak and attacking Patsy as she is just freaking out still in grief over her mom. And it was very effective and very affecting. Yep, good stuff. Have you ever, out of frustration, thrown and smashed something like that? Um, Not a picture. I think I definitely have... It may actually even have come up on a previous episode, what I call construction rage. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like when you cut something the wrong length or like the third time and or something doesn't fit or whatever, and you just get mad and throw shit. 
Yeah, I definitely had to learn the hard way that that whole uh, measure twice, cut once thing really only works if you do it in that order. But yeah, I think you mentioned before you got pretty frustrated at some, uh, was it vinyl flooring? Yeah, no, I threw a plank of laminate flooring across the room. I was so mad. And then immediately felt like I'd like, I looked around, <laughs> feel like, oh, good. Okay. I don't want anybody to see that, you know? Doesn't feel good to totally lose your shit like that. No. Although I feel like it could. Like, if in, in a more controlled setting or a less controlled setting, I know they have those rage rooms. Have you heard about those? Uh, yeah, where you can just like smash everything. Mm-hmm. It's like filled with cheap furniture and shit or whatever, and you can just go in there and hit everything with a hammer and destroy as much as you want. I can see that being kind of therapeutic. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I feel like we also talked about this, but when I was a little kid, my dad and uh, my buddy J.L. Sella's dad, Paul, and a bunch of us kids like got to take turns smashing this inoperable VW bug <laughs> with sledgehammers and stuff. Oh, man. It was super fun. Like the bonus scene in Street Fighter 2. Mm-hmm. Did any of you try just crouching down next to it and shooting electricity off of your body? No, I, th- I, I think that we hadn't, by that point, been exposed to uh, Street Fighter 2. Mm. Or probably the radiation necessary to give you that particular superpower. Right. Yeah, I was going to say I don't think I've ever gotten angry and thrown something like that. But I did break my fist punching a wall at work one time. Also, I do remember now reading a book and it made me very angry and I threw the book across the street. <laughs> did you go pick it up afterwards, sheepishly? I did. And I, I, and I did finish reading it, but I, I'm pretty sure this has come up on the show. It contained a description of somebody as having a head shaped like a upside down potato. And I just got so angry when I read that because I was like, okay, potatoes don't have standardized shapes and they also don't have a right side up. And it made me so mad I just flung it across the street. That's a dumb metaphor. Yeah, I'm getting angry again just thinking about it. (laughs) I'm, I'm angry on your behalf. Thank you. You're very supportive in your rage. Well, there's still a whole bunch more to cover. As we've discussed, this comic book is absolutely packed with action and plot, but I think most of it's going to come up in the minutia. Are you ready to move into the minutia? Let's do it. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what category do you feel like starting off with? There was a lot of fun sounds in this issue. Why don't we uh, do sound effects? Yeah, let's. I think my favorite sound effect was smashing! (laughs) Which was the noise it made when the Hulk destroyed a giant Atlantean tank. It's smash with two extra S's followed by ang. A-N-G-G. And, uh... Yeah, I feel like that was the sound effects trying to adopt a British accent because they were smashing, but over the pond, as it were. And uh, I really enjoyed that. I really liked that one, too. I I didn't read it as having an accent, but more so that the ang at the end was like this. You're supposed to viscerally 
experience the reverberation of all that metal, you know, mm. kind of clanging in upon itself. I guess that makes sense too. Possibly even more sense as Smashang would not be a very good British accent. But I, I was just, you know, I appreciated that they were trying. Give me give me some context in, in which a Brit would say Smashang. <laughs> Let's see. You would need me to set it up for you? Yeah, yeah, give me a scenario. Okay, hey Gov, how's the tea? Oh, quite smashing! I feel like you you didn't do justice to all the G's at the end. Alright, I'm sorry. Um, Fancy a pint, mate? Core, Gov! That'd be smashing! Oh, no. A for effort. Yeah, I mean, the sound effects are doing their best, but yes, as we have both noticed, it's not a good British accent. Right. I think my other favorite sound effect was when Nebulon, in his Lady Dorma form, was taking the brunt of Valkyrie's attacks, and it made the noise brunt. Oh, I do like it when the sound effects are just the word of... It's like, it's not a onomatopoeia, it's just like the word of what's happening. Yeah, it's just a description presented as a sound effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that always cracks me up. You used to get a ton of that in, like, old Golden Age comics when they were still figuring out the form. And so you'd have, like, sound effects like, uh... Kick. Yeah, you would sometimes have stuff that was just, like, kick, but sometimes it would get way more elaborate than that. The one I'm thinking of is there was a hero called Mano Metal, and when he turned to metal, the sound effect literally said, Turns to metal again! (laughs) I think something like this came up when there was a dream sequence where Kyle was trying to learn and the sound effect was geometry. (laughs) Oh, Kyle. Poor Kyle. But yeah, I feel like in the really early days of comics, they were still trying to delineate whether sound effects should be onomatopoeias or just straight up exposition. And shit got wild. Did you have any other sound effects you wanted to talk about? I had two more that I wanted to talk about. One, and maybe I'm just amused by it because we see Steve Strange slapped in the face so hard he goes flying and it makes the noise whomp. Yeah, that was pretty good. And then the other one is Nebulon in his uh, space leotard form. Mm -hmm. Just face planting really hard onto something metal, which makes the noise wang. Yeah, always funny to see a wang where you're not expecting it. Not always. Oh, good point. Well, Corey, let's do this week's Battle of the Band Names. In last week's contest, we saw a new champion crowned. Province of Science soundly defeated Tattered Emotions. Wow. So, Province of Science, those plucky young probably Canadian, melodic, lo-fi indie rockers, are the champs we will be pitting today's band name against. You know what, dude? They don't even care. (laughs) And that's what makes them so cool. So the first and I guess most obvious that I really wish wasn't a band from Australia, so I can't use them, is Imperious Rex. Oh, Wow, yeah, that hadn't even occurred to me as a band name, but yes, of course it is one. And one that was almost certainly, if not inspired by this comic book, was directly taken, I mean, 
Imperius Rex is not actual Latin. It is made up for the comic book, so that is uh, where they got it from. I scoured the internet trying to find that point of reference, because, yeah, what else could it be? But um, I was not successful. Yeah, no, they just lifted that from Namor. I had a novelty band, which I am hesitant to bring forward, but it's just such a good name for a novelty band, which does nautical parodies of hip-hop songs, and they are called Aquatic by Nature. (laughs) Oh, that is good. I cannot imagine for the life of me what that would sound like. But um, No, I can't either, but honestly, I bet it's out there. <laughs> oh, wow. I like that. But I think what I may actually prefer to that one is uh, the, I'm going to say like atmospheric, meditative, new age sounds, like Enya-esque sounds of the somnolomists. Oh, I had them too. I had them down as space rock, but yeah, I think you're right. Maybe they're more of like a deep forest kind of band. (laughs) Yeah, man. Well, I think we had established that if we both have one, that's the one that we're going to go with. Did you have any others you wanted to bring up? I I did have two others. Keeping with the aquatic theme, uh, a surf band that probably sounds like, I don't know, the Mermen or the Aqua Velvets uh, called The Sunken Kingdom. Ooh. And then probably what might be my favorite, which is uh, sort of like a Mongolian throat singing meets EDM. And those are the thunderous huzzas. Oh, wow. Because according to Wikipedia, huzzah is a term that originated in Mongolia. I did not know that. Well, I read it on the internet. It must be true. Huh, I always thought it was just people with shitty handwriting trying to spell hurrah. Well, gosh, I mean... Honestly, this is a weird situation because I don't think it's necessarily my favorite choice. But by the uh, somewhat arbitrary rules that we established as we went along, it looks like the Somnolomists is our choice. So uh, the Somnolomists, it's tough to say. It, it really is because you want it to have a like an N, I feel like, instead of an M. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the Somnolomists is going to be our choice going forward. I like somnolomists, too, because it is a pun, because they are these mists that induce slumber, and it's just introduced in such an offhand manner. It makes me wonder if those are previously existing Marvel things that Atlantis has access to, but I I thought it was pretty clever. Yeah, likewise. Corey, we had a lot of words to choose from in this, but which words were your favorite? What was your pie not made out of steel? Yeah, it was tricky to narrow it down. I went with one bit of exposition because I mostly really liked the metaphor in it. And it's describing Lord Vashti's misgivings when Namor shows up super happy with the formerly dead Lady Dorma. It is only Lord Vashti, the Ocean King's longtime aide and confidant, who notes there is a certain coldness beneath those words, and a worm of fear burrows through his gut. Mm. I read that, and I was just like, oh, I know that feeling. Yeah. Isn't that the worst? Like, when you realize, I don't know, you have that, like, sudden realization that you've made a giant mistake, or (laughs) you get some, like, really bad news. You do feel this, like, you feel it in your guts, you know? Well, and in this specific case, there is a literal worm of fear Ah. that is behind all of this nonsense. I guess it's more a worm of 
cosmic real estate malfeasance, but still, <laughs> it's a worm. It's bad news, that's for sure. No, I really enjoyed that metaphor. I thought that was really well done. Just a lot of the verbiage in this issue was evocative in interesting ways and also pretty funny. And both of my choices were of the pretty funny variety. I think my favorite words in the issue are when everybody's hanging out in the sanctum sanctimonious and Damon Hellstrom picks up a crystal and says, this crystal is fascinating, doctor. You use it in your necromantic rites, no doubt. And Steve says, actually, Damon, I use it as a paperweight. I love, too, that they put some bolding on the words paperweight so you can tell Steve is really dicking it up. Like, he's just putting so much emphasis on that to make Damon feel like a dumbass. Yeah, he's really leaning into that. And my second thing that cracked me up was also a moment of Steve being very Stevie, which is to say, a bit of a dick. And that's when Kyle says, gee, if they wanted to be alone, they could have just left the room. That really cracked me up. I liked the underlining of that. And I'm kind of glad, honestly, that I didn't notice that there was that coloration issue, which made Steve be the one that Kyle was saying that to. Mm-hmm. I know, that's just such a... You're right, it is Steve, like, at his steviestness. They really could have just gone into the corner and had a conversation, but he's like, everybody, look how special I am. Look at how discreet we're being. Just keep eating your basket robins. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, you have something embarrassing to say, Damon? Don't worry, everyone, Damon is going to tell me something embarrassing. So we'll be over here behind this mystic shield. No listening. And especially when we see that the bubble he creates isn't even soundproof because he hears Kyle's horrifyingly familiar pitiful wail through it. Everything's bad about that choice. <laughs> it was just for show. Oh, Steve. Well, Corey, lot to choose from in this category. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion do you want to talk about? Dude, the Celestial Mind Control Clown cheerleaders are back. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm always happy to see them. They're just in one panel of expositional flashback, but they still managed to steal the show. I had forgotten how absolutely bonkers that whole storyline was. That was fun to be reminded of that. It was. And that is maybe the most over-the-top distinct look we're going to see in this or any issue is of the cheerleaders with the Bozo the Clown masks. But it isn't the only very specific choice that was made fashion-wise. Bruce Banner is wearing a deep v-neck sweater with no shirt on under it, and it was very distracting. <laughs> it's a nice sweater. I like it, but it does need an undershirt, Bruce. It's cool. It's like one of those... Um... I got this hand-me-down shirt from my dad that actually, I think, belonged to, like, his dad or his uncle. It was his dad, your grandpa, because I actually got one from him, too, that's kind of similar. Yeah, and so it's like this v-neck kind of sweater, but it has a collar sewn into it to give the appearance of it, you know, being worn over, like, a dress shirt, right? Mm -hmm. So cool. Yeah, but yeah, Bruce's is... uh canary yellow with then like a light orange v for the faux undershirt but as i said 
it is a very deep V that you see his bare chest under that. So I, it is designed to be worn with a t-shirt as well. Mm-hmm. We already talked about Son of Satan's inadvertent Captain America tattoo on his chest. The Atlanteans fashion is really something to behold. The Atlantean who I mentioned before, he looks like Laverne's dad on Laverne and Shirley, or the Atlantean who would maybe be on the cover of their pizza boxes, kissing his fingers. Um, He is wearing, it's not a puka shell necklace, it's a scallop shell necklace. He's wearing a bright blue shirt with bright red scallop necklace over it, and then pants that look like they're made from a sushi rolling mat. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I guess sushi is thematically appropriate for Atlantis, if, you know, a little bit on the nose. And then, really, just all of the Atlanteans are bringing the finest from their respective wardrobes to this town meeting in which war is being announced. Yeah, they are dressed up for the event. Mm-hmm. We also see footage of uh, Namor's 1970s outfit, which I'm a huge fan of, uh, where it's the vest with shoulder pads and wings under his arms. I just think that's a cool look. In the one page that that Patsy had, she's wearing what looks like a pretty solidly 80s outfit. So either a sweater or like a sweatshirt. It's pretty heavy uh, ribbing around the sleeves and the collar and the, the waist. But what I noticed was her jeans, the panel where she's smashing the picture. Yeah. It shows her back pockets have like super fancy I think like when um, maybe Jordash or one of those companies had just like started to come out with their like fancy like fashion jeans. It's got like weird chevrons on the pocket that make it look almost like the Decepticon logo. So possibly those are shape-shifting jeans. Oh. How betrayed would you feel if your pants turned out to be evil robots? I don't know that betrayed is the right like because they purported themselves just to be ordinary pants and i was like oh you fooled me yes they purported themselves to be ordinary pants they're actual evil robots and you were walking around wearing them right over your junk i don't know i would be startled probably more more than betrayed i think i would feel betrayal i think maybe i have a closer bond with my pants than you do because i own less of them Mm. like i wear pretty much the same pair of jeans just about every day uh-huh. So if they turned out to be evil robots, first of all, I wouldn't have any pants. She'd be cold and lonely. <laughs> but also I would just be like, man, we had a thing going, pants. Hmm. And you just threw it all away to be an evil robot. Those pants better hope some space cops show up to teleport them onto their spaceship. Before you pound them to dust or rend, rend them leg from leg? Yup. Well, Corey, I have a question I have to ask you. Sure. Behold or be gone? Today's Behold or Be Gone is inspired by Patsy Walker's kind of cameo in this issue. As we discussed, she picks up a picture and throws it through a mirror and smashes the shit out of it, which reminded me of those rage rooms that we talked about. That got me thinking. What if there were other rooms that you could go to and rent out to experience other emotions? Is there one that you would like to visit? And what emotion would it be? And how would it be set up in there? Hmm. 
Well, I feel like I'm certainly taking the easy way out by saying no, thank you. <laughs> I am uncomfortable enough with emotions as it is. Well, that's why I think it would be useful to have a separate room that is isolated from everything that you could go to, to, like, experience it to its fullest. The one that I came up with was sorrow or a sad room, essentially. Because, first of all, I was like, okay, what other emotions are there? Like, hungry? Oh, they have rooms that you go to for that. <laughs> I mean, we can't go to them right now, but, you know, presumably eventually there will be. And uh, lust rooms, I think, are also kind of a thing that you can mm. do. But I also know what it's like to have that feeling where it's like, you need to have a good cry. And it's like a sneeze that isn't just quite coming, you know? Mm -hmm. And you need to get it out of your system because you you're, you're just so used to suppressing your feelings because, you know, you grew up in New England that you don't remember how to cry anymore. But mm -hmm. when you do, it feels really good. And mm. so I was thinking of how you would go about setting up a, a sad room. And uh, I don't know, like, you don't want it to turn into a brood room. So you don't want to go full goth with it. I guess, like... You need a bunch of TV screens that are, like, all tuned into like, the no dogs allowed scene from Snoopy Come Home and uh, various 1990s long-distance commercials. See, I don't like this because I do agree with you that it's important to have a good cry and get that stuff out, but I don't want to feel like I'm manipulated into it by some third-party contrivance, right? So if I walk into a room and every screen is like playing that ASPCA ad oh, with all God. the sad dogs and Sarah McLaughlin is singing, I'm going to lose my shit. It's too much. Yeah, it's going to turn into a rage room. <laughs> well, no, you're going to be very emotionally uh, stimulated is not the right word, but... <laughs> You know, it's and but then I'm going to be mad because I'm just like, God damn it, made me cry so much. Yeah. Now I have to go adopt all those dogs. <laughs> see, I think I could see feeling that way if I was ambushed by it. Like if I thought I was going into, I don't know, an escape room or something and it turned out to be that. But I feel like if it's a curated experience that I'm purchasing, I think it might be something I could get behind. I was talking about this with Lisa before the show and. She had an addendum to how you could set the room up that I think makes a lot of sense, which would be to uh, to put it on a plane. Because like when you're when you achieve that level of elevation, then you're just automatically more susceptible to feeling emotions. Because like I've definitely watched movies on airplanes that I was just like, oh, man, that was so sad. And then like I see it again, I was like, oh, no, that was just a regular ass movie. Mm -hmm. And that is like an actual thing. So maybe if it was just, I don't know how, maybe if it was just uh, more personally tailored to you, I don't know if you can set it up yourself or if that's like tickling yourself. Yeah, I mean, it probably is like there's all, you know, we all have memories that if you sit there and reflect on them, you'll definitely mm -hmm. get a strong emotional response from it. I just, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not feeling this one. I feel okay. like if it's going to come out, you know, as long as I have some, some privacy. <laughs> That's probably enough, but otherwise it's it's going to be like, I didn't really want to revisit that sad stuff. Gotcha. Honestly, to set up a sad room for me, it would just need to play like one of four songs. The one that comes to mind immediately is there was a, uh, a lawyer turned folk singer in New Hampshire when we were growing up that I think both sets of our parents liked. 
named John Peralt. His song Sonny's Back. Do you know that one? Is that about like a, a Vietnam vet coming home? Yeah, it's it's a song about a Vietnam vet who comes home and he finds out that his wife has married another guy while he was gone because they didn't think he was going to make it back. And his son comes out and holds a shotgun on him and says, go away, dad. I like my new dad better. Oof. Yeah, that's rough. Anyway, we're going to need to get back to this podcast in about five or six minutes or so. <laughs> I'm pretty sure somebody just loaded this room onto an airplane. The airplane thing is, le- is legit. I cried a lot during that Disney movie Coco on, that I saw on a flight. I think that's legit, though. I did, I did too, and I didn't see it on a plane. You weren't, you weren't on a plane? Okay, this no. is just a good movie. Yeah, okay. Coco's just a good movie. Okay. All right, sounds like we got a split decision on Behold or Be Gone. I think there is a market for sad rooms, and I would maybe like to visit one every now and again, uh, whereas you feel they are too overtly manipulative. Yep. Who did you have as your best defender, and who did you have as your worst offender in this one? Yeah, this one was a little more cut and dried than these usually are for me. I had as my best Namor for overcoming some serious mind fuckery. Ah. And, you know, kind of helping to save the day at the end. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably not killing any British people when he took over London. I don't see how he could have avoided it. It is a military invasion that is being described as exceptionally unmerciful. I don't see how you get that without at least a few casualties. Hey, I didn't see any. So tough, but fair to take that face value. So Namor for overcoming things, because I was so mad at him when he just like, oh, my God, I'm so happy. Let's go to war. Yeah, it's like, okay, dude, I know you're. Like, this is typical for you to be that mercurial, but, like, where is your motivation? And, like, oh, okay, motivation is evil space slug. Got it. Yeah. Not his fault. Well, and especially when you get, like, the one dissenting guy who pipes up and is like, hey, why are we going to war? And everybody's just like, fuck you. (laughs) Just kicks the shit out of him. That was, like, I felt so bad for that guy. Yeah. But, yeah, so I I had Namor basically because his friendship with Val was stronger than the mind control of Nebulon. And that's what kind of snapped him out of it. I guess, but he also doesn't snap out of it really until Nebulon turns into the giant sea slug. And he's like, I can't believe I fucked that thing. (laughs) He starts to snap out of it when (laughs) Nebulon in his dead wife's form is fighting with Val. That's, That's the trigger that gets him he starts to snap out of it a little bit yeah (laughs) but i think probably if nebulon had kept on as dorma at that point i don't know i had as my best val for bearing the full brunt of nebulon's assault for a while giving namor the chance to free the other defenders and uh i i just thought val did a great job in this she did she made Dorma feel the brunt of the flat side of her sword, literally. Indeed, she did. Conversely, as my worst defender, I had Steve. He does an okay job for the most part, but just the worst bedside manner with Kyle. I had Steve as well, and my reason was him just being rude as fuck. Like, everybody's hanging out, having a nice ice cream party, and I think it was like, 
you know, belittling of him to be like, you know what's more important than your stupid ice cream party? My bubble of privacy. My mystical bubble of semi-privacy. Everybody be quiet now. Damon has something embarrassing to tell me. Right? Nobody look while he tells me this thing. I'm fairly certain they can all still hear them, too. Especially you, Kyle. Yeah, I agree that was a dick move, but really what put it over the top for me was when Kyle is in bed, has just been on death's door, has barely recovered, and Steve gives the little speech that's like, Well, I don't know what caused this, exactly, or what happened, really, but I'm sure of one thing, 100%. You will never walk again. Okay, we're gonna leave now. Bye! So harsh. It's harsh and also just uninformed. Mm Mm-hmm. It's wild supposition on Steve's part. He doesn't know the nature of the injury, he doesn't know who caused it or why, but to automatically assume that it can't be undone because he hasn't figured it out in the five minutes that he's looked at Kyle. Yeah. And to just share that with Kyle and then be, and then peace out of the situation. What a shitty thing to do. It is a shitty thing to do. And, you know, not to make an unfair comparison, but there were elements of that that kind of reminded me of my dad's propensity to <laughs> look at the worst case scenario of things. Yeah. Like, ah, I really hurt myself skateboarding. You'll never walk again. <laughs> I can totally see Jim saying that. When we first bought our house, when there were like minor things would go wrong with it, it was always a decision that we had to make. It's like, <laughs> should we ask Jim about that? He knows a lot about carpentry, but there's also a pretty good chance that he'll just look at it and just be like, oh, your whole house is going to f- crumble to ash within three months. Yeah, no, there is always that cost-benefit analysis that takes place before you ask for help. He and my mom have gotten very into basketball recently, which is really nice. But uh, when they were first starting to get into it was before the pandemic. Uh, I would sometimes watch games with them and like the Blazers would be down like four points in the first quarter. And he'd just be like, oh, I'm going to turn it off. There's no way they're going to pull out of this one. <laughs> but I love Jim in a way that I don't love Steve. Absolutely. He would never do that privacy bubble during an ice cream party. No, I think he would stick around and enjoy Kyle's flair ice cream tending. Yep. Corey, what was your favorite panel in this issue? I had probably narrowed it down to two. One is the first page that has the aforementioned dolphin side eye. I call it dolphin frolic. And it's that big full page where Namor is just swimming with his four dolphin buddies frolicking Mm -hmm. around. I think it's probably more accurate to say his four dolphin subordinates from the way that they're looking at him. Mm -hmm. I did also like that just so you didn't have to worry about why that dolphin was giving Namor side eye. The exposition does take care to point out it's just a few moments of innocent play. Nothing weird going on. Good to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked that one a lot too. One of my favorites I called The Defenders Abroad, and it's when they first show up in England where Steve teleported them, and there's Big Ben so that you know that you're in England, because that's the one landmark for that place. You know, either that or the guard with the big furry hat, but it is just a really nice three-quarters page, probably, picture of The Defenders 
arriving at this scene of carnage and it's just really nicely drawn yeah i love the uh, atlantean army and their machinery that's a great contrast to big band in the background mm-hmm. yeah i like that one too my other favorite was a panel that i called fat chance which is after the atlanteans kind of dogpile onto the defenders and <laughs> then are thrown off and it's just horrified surprised scared Atlanteans flying in every which direction, getting thrown off by uh, the defenders. It's full of action. Yeah, I dug that too. There was, I think, a full like three or four pages of just fight scenes in London that I thought were really nicely done and also gave the comic book a little bit of breathing space, kind of, in terms of all of the dense exposition that you saw in the rest of the issue. And I thought those were a, really pretty to look at, and two, kind of necessary for our pacing. Mm-hmm. I think my other favorite panel, although I think I do slightly prefer the Defenders Abroad, is uh, Steve doing his initial astral examination on Kyle. It's just a close-up of Steve, and he's got that third eye in his forehead, and he's given Kyle's body a once-over right before he starts reminiscing about that time when they all pitched in a little bit of soul sausage to patch him up last time. Yeah, that's a good one. You got the waves of mystical stuff like radiating off of him. Mm-hmm. The follow-up panel to that, too, the flashback of it, of them all standing around holding hands and then zapping Kyle with their soul bits. It's funny because it looks like there's a bifurcated beam shooting out of the eye of Agamotto. Like, he's got an astral thumb over the middle of it to make a wider shot. It's just kind of odd. I don't think I've ever seen the eye act that way before. Mm, Good point. Well, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, I went literal again with the Hulk's rules coming from the Hulk in this issue. So we talked about Steve's terrible bedside manner (laughs) earlier, Mm -hmm. and that dovetails with the Hulk's rules, which are just simply, it's very important to learn how to complain effectively and clearly. Ah. In this case, the Hulk grabs Steve by his shirt collar (laughs) and makes a giant fist and says, no, magician fixed bird knows once you better do it again. And it's one of the first times that we see Steve clearly rattled. (laughs) Hulk, please. I felt like that was an effective uh, complaint. Yeah. I mean, it didn't have the desired effect. Steve did his once over and much like a scientist in the dc universe deciding he doesn't know how to make a robot just looks at it and says oh sorry can't be done bye yeah no the outcome wasn't what we had hoped but somebody had to say something and the hulk was the one that did no i think that's a good rule for the hulk i had the hulk's rule being one that was inspired both by this issue and by events from the new teen titans comic books which the hulk has read And that was Hulk learning the lesson, huh, I guess it's not always a good thing to dress up like somebody's dead wife. Not always? No, I mean, it usually works out when Raven does it. (laughs) But uh, dressing up like somebody's dead wife is a double-edged sword. It can be used for good or evil. It's just a tool. (laughs) Damn. 
And that's the Hulk's rule. <laughs> wow. That's unusually uh, macabre for the Hulk. Yeah, well, yeah, you take what the defense gives you. Well, Corey, I got just one more question I gotta ask you. Shoot. In the year of our Lord, 1981, and the month of our Lord, March, what Wong doings was Wong doing? So this has come up before, I think, that Wong has a very extensive network of people in lots of different industries and of uh, different interests. And, you know, one of his buddies is the uh, incredibly successful Stephen J. Cannell, a writer and producer of pretty much every show on TV in the 80s. He was the one, right, who had the logo at the end that was papers coming off the typewriter and making an S and a C. Mm -hmm. So one of those shows, which I think has come up on the podcast before, is The Greatest American Hero, which premiered March 18th on ABC. So Wong had given Steve, the writer, not the magician, the idea for the Ralph Hinckley character, you know, teacher who finds a super suit and loses the instructions and, you know, hilarity ensues. And... He was so bummed out that they had to change, after just two weeks into the show, the last name of the character from um, Hinckley to Hanley because of the whole John W. Hinckley shooting Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah. And then later on, the show just started calling um, the character Mr. H. So Huang was a little bummed to see his character walked back like that. But on the other hand, he was quite pleased with another little bit of advice that he had given to... Uh, his buddy, musician and songwriter uh, Joey Scarberry, who wrote the song Believe It or Not, which was the theme song mm-hmm. for the show Greatest American Hero, that just, you know, rocketed up the charts, becoming uh, number two on the Billboard Top 40. And the bit of advice that he gave him was initially, Scarberry had the lyric, Believe It or Not, I'm Walking on Water. Oh. And Wong's, Wong's like, uh, Joey, Joey, just. You can't use that. And he's like, why? He's like, well, this, the whole Jesus thing, man. It's going to piss people off. And so that was how they came up with the Believe It or Not, I'm Walking on Air lyric. Ah, very good. Nice work, Wong. <laughs> he's here to help, you know? He's a helper. Mm-hmm. Okay. Air, water, sunshine. Which of those would you rather walk on? Air. Yeah, I think that's the right choice. I mean, Katrina <laughs> sounds probably like more fun to hang out with than Joey. But uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with air. I think walking on sunshine's. My, I I prefer the song, but I think you're right. If I can walk on either one of them, rather walk on air than on sunshine, especially in Portland. It just is gonna be around more. Mm-hmm. Gives you yeah. more options. Yeah, good point. Well, that was one thing that Wong was up to in March of 1981. The other thing that Wong was up to was uh, really being concerned about Steve's behavior. See. Steve had been acting kind of weird ever since the Hulk grabbed him by his lapels and was like, fix Kyle. And I think you were right. Steve isn't used to being intimidated by people. And so he decided that the solution to this was to to get in better shape. And Wong was like, okay. And for a while, he was training Steve, doing some various exercises, showing him some of his martial arts training and trying to provide a workout for Steve that way. But after a while, Steve was like, no, no, this is too difficult. I'm going to do a different technique. And Wong's like, oh, okay. Hey, no skin off my nose, whatever. And then Steve just started acting really weird, even for Steve. Suddenly, everywhere he went in the sanctum, he was pushing around a wheelchair 
that had a realistic dummy of Joan Crawford in it. <laughs> what? And Wong was like, what are you doing? Oh, I, I mean, at first he just watched it and was like, it's probably for some spell or something. I, I don't even want to ask. But Steve just kept it up. And every time he was doing it, he was wearing some leg warmers and, and a headband. And, and Wong eventually was just like, Steve, what are you doing? And Steve was like, oh, Wong, I I'm surprised you haven't heard about this. It's this new exercise routine that I heard about. It's called Betty Davisizing. I believe they even wrote a song about it. And Wong's like, oh, Steve, the, the song is Betty Davis Eyes, not Betty Davis Eyes. It's not an exercise routine. And Steve's like, oh, I'm fairly certain it's like jazzercising. Just Betty Davisizing. Wong started to set him right and then was like, you know what? He'll get tired of doing this soon enough. And eventually, Steve did just get tired of pushing a wheelchair around the sanctum that had a lifelike dummy of Joan Crawford in it. Damn. And that is what Wong was doing in March of 1981. Oh, that is too funny. Because the song Betty Davis Eyes was released on March 10th. I should have included that. Sorry. I got it from context clues. Oh, thank you. Good mm -hmm. job, Corey. Thank you. And thank you for joining us, listeners. We will be back next week with another New Teen Titans adventure, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks for the start of the next Defenders epic, The Six-Fingered Hand. Curious about that. Maybe mm. they'll be going up against Christopher Guest from uh, The Princess Bride. One can only hope. But tune in to find out. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can reach us at ttwasteland at gmail.com or via our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We're also up on social media, so, you know, you can look for us there. Just type words into a computer, and if some of them are Tighten Up the Defense, then we'll be in there somewhere. If you can't find us there, there's another place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. Having a good cry. I will be. Corey won't be watching the same shows. Nope. What are you going to be doing in people's hearts, Corey? Thoughtfully installing a high-quality laminate floor without getting mad and throwing any boards. Oh, be careful. Mm -hmm. You're playing with fire. Oh, I know. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by checking us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I host monthly with my wife, Lisa. There's also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comics on there that I try to do at least once a week. And there's a whole bunch of other just podcasts and various audio material up there for your enjoyment and that is available exclusively to our donors so that is one reason why you might consider supporting us another and from my vantage point more important reason is that by supporting the show you let us know that it's important to you that we keep doing the show and it makes it possible for us to keep doing it so thank you so much for that if you would like to support the show in a non-financial manner, there's probably some ways that you can do that, too. What, what are some ways they can do that, Corey? Let's see. I think probably 
the best way is just to talk to people about it. The show, that is. Well, okay. Who are some people they could talk to? They could talk to a family member, a teacher. A teacher that they trust, I presume, right? A teacher they trust, of course. Yeah. Of course. You could tell a friend. You could tell an enemy. That is a wide array of people. You could tell anyone. Well, almost anyone, Corey. Hmm. They can't tell my mother-in-law. You can't tell that lady anything. Uh, you can even tell your mother-in-law. <laughs> oh, okay. I stand corrected. And my mother-in-law's fine. I've just been watching a lot of old sitcoms. Another thing you could do is to leave us a review in a place that a review can be left. We've gotten a couple of new reviews on Apple Podcasts recently. Radagast42 writes, Just a couple of humans from Earth. Five stars. I'd like to make it clear that the hosts of this podcast are Earth humans. I think the scurrilous accusations to the contrary are ridiculous. Only true Earth humans could give such thoughtful commentary about such divisive Earth topics as bears and comic books. I'd like to thank iTunes for the space to make this clear, and I'd like to thank the reader of this review for listening to this podcast. Therefore, I will. Thank you. And thank you, Radagast. You raised several good points, the most important of which being we are both humans from Earth. Yep. Definitely not space bears. Definitely not space bears. Definitely not David Bowie-esque cosmic international champions who are here to flip this Earth for real estate profits. Definitely nothing of that kind. And uh, well noted, Radagast42. Indeed. Thanks for the review. Yeah. And so if you'd like to leave a review, just, you know, leave that one. Just uh, copy and paste it. Plagiarism. It's the wave of the future. Why not hang 10 on it? With us, tighten up the defense. Five stars. So we'll be back next week when I'm sure it will be quite smashing to see you. (laughs) (sighs) Bye. Bye. Well, he's right. Ladies do love Cool James. Who doesn't? <laughs> exactly. He should change his name to E.L. Cool J. Everybody <laughs> loves Cool James.